Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on the new Aleph, three weeks have passed since Soma became a seated Aleph of Pan. The new situation is seen by Nathan as an opportunity, but to those around Aramis and Paul, it carries heavy foreboding. And now, chapter 14 of the new Aleph. You're not headed to the commune, are you? Aramis stopped her walk across the stone bridge and looked at the sidewalk on the other side. She first squinted in the dim light, the cloudy night offering no help to the sparse lampstones lining both sides. Then she grumbled and fished out her glasses. She normally didn't like wearing them after work, when her eyes were tired from helping Gail with paperwork all day. It was Phyllis calling to her, walking along with bags hanging from her shoulders. No, Aramis yelled over the wind, blowing through the river's shallow canyon. She stepped out to walk toward Phyllis, then jumped back as a bus rambled across the bridge at full speed. I'm headed to a friend's house for Noach's day. Ah, that's the one where you eat lots of meat. That's a holy day I could get behind. Phyllis smiled. Aramis looked both ways, then ran across the road to stand next to Phyllis. What's wrong with going to the commune? Phyllis frowned. Everybody's leaving. They're going to Curator so they can take a ship to the Surling Islands. Why? Phyllis stepped in close and lowered her voice. Sort of. There's only a month until the deadline. Aramis groaned at that. Why would everybody want to leave? There's no way that everyone's a soul space offender. The announcement said anyone connected to Soul Space murder, theft, or illegal sale. They don't know if that means you're friends with someone who did, or done business with somebody who did, or what. We all know people who have, so everybody's spooked. Everybody thinks our new Aleph killed Ignacio because of that. And I know more than a few people who have been involved with dealing in the past. Aramis squinted an eye. Sometimes Aleph would pay Pravids to hand out information to people, pamphlets talking about jobs at work camps out in the forest. Often those Pravids would find out after the fact that the people at the work camps would be killed to steal their soul space. Technically, because they were paid to tell people about the camps, they were complicit in the murders and qualified as soul dealers. That is bad. But I still don't get it. If Aleph Dan can get the information she needs to figure out who's an offender, running from the continent won't help. Phyllis shrugged. Better than sitting around waiting to be grabbed. A gust of wind blew against Aramis, forcing her to yell over it. And if you're connected, why not just take the offer? Turn themselves in or something. She said she's doing all this to restore justice. She's not going to do one of those drumhead hearing things. A what? A drumhead hearing. I think that's what they're called. Or a drumhead trial. That probably makes more sense. When you just hand out summary executions and... and, Never mind. I I don't get that kind of vibe from her. I think she's serious about trying to fix things. She's just terrible at PR. That kind of vibe? What kind of vibe do you get? Phyllis had been staring at Aramis blank faced. She's insane. 
She said she would kill anyone who purchased soul space that came from a person who had been killed. She said she was going to bring anyone who'd done that to trial. It's just that the laws apparently say that anyone who's dealt and murdered soul space has to get the death penalty. And she's giving away out by saying that anyone who... Aramis stopped. She didn't know why she was defending the woman. She didn't approve of her methods. She didn't like how everything was happening. She definitely didn't like hearing that Ravid communes were emptying. Phyllis turned around to look down at the gray water of the river rushing under the bridge below them. Aramis joined her in looking in that direction, but the suicide netting between the ancient bridge and the drop kind of ruined the view. Phyllis shook her head. This isn't about justice. She's just trying to get rid of people in power. And most of them are probably offenders. Hey, if you want to come with us, you're more than welcome. I know Bruce is heading out, though I'm not sure why you were ever into him. Aramis nodded, not looking at her. Uh, thanks. Aramis's thoughts drifted off as she left Phyllis, made it to the other side of the bridge, and started up the hill to Kamel's house. Travis is back. Someone was standing in the charting nook, which was just a little walkway next to a U-shaped desk that was at the front of a small library nestled in the forward belly of Negri's yacht, the Galleria. She looked at Hune, standing at the base of the winding staircase leading up to the main deck. She stretched out her spine and tossed a closed bag of pretzels onto her master map of Pan resting on the desk. She was tired of pretzels, and turkey wraps, and cheese tortellini, and chimichangas, and vegetable medley, and canned pears. She may have been one of the four most powerful people in Pan, and usually the only one of those four actually residing there, but she was still a woman with no income and dangerous people who wanted her dead. So, all that she had for food was what she could materialize out of thin air with Negri's key pen, or her key pen. And the only food it could create were about 25 bland meal choices and 40 snack choices, like pretzels. The worst part was that the meals were identical to the H&M rations back in Prometheus. Not the same list of recipes, not similar styles or flavors, but exactly the same. And in nearly identical packaging. She'd eaten all of them dozens of times during her time working for Helis and PD, on long days or nights in the office when she didn't have time or opportunity to get food somewhere else. She looked down at the map and sighed. She had notes written next to the major cities on the main continent, cataloging her plans for how to move forward. There weren't any big cities on the other continents or islands, so dealing with people living on those was a problem she'd deal with later. Just the main continent was more than enough. The first part was done. Despite the risks, she'd visited each mayor of every major city, in person, and let them know her intentions. Most of them were used to following occasional orders from the Aleph's, but not those delivered in person. The seated were rarely hands-on, 
seeing themselves as above such matters. And that was why she was able to execute her plans at all. Soma had first assumed that she'd need to gain permission from the three other seated pan alephs, but had quickly found out that was completely unnecessary. The way the assembly worked, only the lowest ranking seated was required to manage the administration of the world they were associated with. Soma was firmly placed at the bottom, and consequently was free to enforce existing laws in the manner that she saw fit just so long she didn't annoy her superiors, which suited her fine. Regardless of how the mayors felt about Soma's direct approach, most of them seemed to be following her preliminary instructions, but not all. She leaned over the huge sheet of paper and tapped on the city of Abensden. Kindly go F yourself was written by the name of the city because that was what their mayor, a stern woman named Penelope Brusselette, had said to her. Got some bad news, Dan. Soma turned to see that Travis had joined Hewn in standing by the staircase. Was it the 866 again? She sighed. I'm a little worried Hemstock will be moving ahead of schedule, regardless of whether or not I find the evidence their courts need. Travis shook his head. No, I finally found that file. Actually, I finished early and had time to sort through some of it. The castle overlooking the lake has some beautiful study rooms. The problem is that I was followed. Soma stepped down the stairs from the charting nook, down to the library, then up the stairs, out of the library to where Travis was standing. The library was built more for aesthetics than practicality. Sorensen was supposed to protect you. It's not like that. Travis gestured for her to follow with a jerk of his head. As she followed, she thought about how it was a mixed blessing to have Travis here. Someone who didn't treat her like royalty, but who was deeply aware that he owed her dearly. Going from a reject fire fairy to a demigod ruler of an entire world in one moment had been jarring. In addition to that, she was thoroughly numb from losing two men. Both of them killed by the same group of people. That numbness made it so she didn't have any fire in her anger toward Travis because of his affair with her husband. She did not forgive him, but instead held on to a cold practicality in knowing that she could trust to keep his loyalty through his guilt, which satiated her desire for retribution over his betrayal. It had been pretty easy to convince him to come over here. The message she'd had Sorensen deliver to him when she'd gone over to pick him up had been, Alec and the girls were killed, and I know why. I know how to stop it from happening again. Curiosity had brought him here in the magical flying teleporting boat. Once here, she had not presented the job as an option, instead telling him what he was going to do for her. She couldn't enter Threshold and needed someone who understood evidence analysis to go to the library and get what she needed to take down the soul offenders. After topping the winding staircase, Travis led her from the main deck corridor to outside onto the sun deck and to the ramp that led to the scaffolding. Scaffolding that ran all around the walls of the massive cylindrical cargo hold of the vessel that the Galleria was hidden inside. The Galleria wasn't a particularly large boat, 
especially when you tried to have three people live comfortably in it. But it definitely wasn't small. About 24 meters from stem to stern, with the bowsprit and other superfluous spars adding another 8 meters to the length. So that said a lot about the size of the craft it was hiding inside. A boat inside a boat at the bottom of the ocean. Soma's current home was a smuggling submarine that, possibly decades ago, had run aground near the northwestern coast of Pan's main continent. The walls of the hold were lined with paraphernalia like zines, gum pack music players, vinyl albums, pages torn from books, and iridescent silvery metal discs taken from strange cylindrical enclosures that Sorensen had called rivet boxes. All of that stuff had been in this vessel when it had crashed. Hewn and Sorensen had covered the walls with the stuff after they'd arrived, sharing Ignacio's theory that old, worn media would shield them from the magical, prying eyes of other Alephs. But as Soma stepped onto the platform and headed down the creaking steel stairs to the floor of the hold, she grumbled that it wasn't enough. The two women standing below in the center of the hold were evidence of that. Detective Dan, good to meet you said the taller of the two, fair-skinned and slender. The skin almost seemed luminescent. She was likely a wind vede. Her companion had a compact tone build and very short hair and spiraling vassal tattoos on her neck, upper arms, midriff, and ankles. Hewn had explained to Soma that such tattoos were made with DA ink, and they gave a person extra powers, but he wouldn't go into detail. Oddly enough, the compact tattooed one was carrying a garment bag. Soma reached the bottom of the stairs and approached confidently, but stopped with a few meters still between them. Yes? They both tilted their heads toward her, a hint of a bow. We're here to inform you of an assembly meeting, 20th of February. Soma chewed on her lower lip. That's two days before my deadline. The taller one nodded. The details will have arrived in your Aleph key either way, but since this will be your first meeting, it was decided a personal visit would be best to make sure you were informed. Soma looked over at Hune, who was standing not far away, watching the two strangers carefully. Sorensen probably wasn't far away, just merely out of sight. Soma was worried, but Hune didn't have that odd sort of his out at the moment. Not yet, anyway. After six months living with Ignacio, Soma had thought she knew the ins and outs of magical devices. But he'd only been an expert on Mazai devices and potions. And Hyun's sword wasn't a Mazai device. Soma turned back to the two suited visitors, who she had expected might be here to kill her. The shorter one smiled. You don't have to worry about the assembly challenging you. Your position is safe for the next three years. The three other pan-seated all owe you a debt for opening up the promotion slot above them. However, you're wise to keep yourself hidden. The surviving sub-assembly members will likely try to take advantage of your lack of experience and connections. We'd rather you didn't allow that. The other nodded at her companion. At the end of your term, your seat goes up for re-election. Then you can run as incumbent and attempt to remain for another eight-year term. 
but you'll have to have won over a majority of Pan's Alephs. Soma folded her arms. Only reason I'd have to do that is if I can't finish what I need to do in the next three years. The two messengers looked at each other. The tall one spoke without looking back at Soma. 10 a.m., 20th of February. It will be at the Alanessa Citadel, considering you can't leave Pan. Travis frowned. How did you know that she... You will need this. As she said that, the compact one stepped forward and handed Soma the garment bag. Soma looked down at it a moment, confused, then opened it. Inside was a uniform, the same kind as Negri's. She rubbed a thumb against the Merlot-colored fabric. It was fine wool. You'll need to wear it to be in attendance. There is a manual included in the bag with regulations concerning decorations. One other thing. The shorter one spoke while the tall one pulled out a key pen and drew a door on the wall with silver ink. Find an LWA trainer immediately. As it stands, you're under investigation and on probation because of your loss of control at the hearing. If you don't begin training regularly at a licensed school, there will be claims made against you. Claims? Soma mumbled as the two of them stepped through the magically appearing door in the wall. As it shut behind them, the wood of the door blinked away, leaving the magazine-lined, gradually curving metal bulkhead from before. Well, Travis said, after a moment of dull silence. That was interesting. Soma threw the garment bag over her shoulder. We need to relocate. The assembly may not come after us, but that doesn't mean those two won't accidentally tell someone where we are. Travis shook his head. They could have easily sent in a dozen of those to kill us. I'm sorry I let them follow me. It's fine. Soma waved a hand. Travis gestured at her. Also, the one with the tattoos was right. We need to find you a school. Though I'm not sure what LWA means. I've been talking to Hune, and he says that if you trained up, you could be a one-woman army. It means Living Weapon Act. Hune walked up to join the conversation. It's a school that trains people with powers. Soma frowned. How can I train somewhere like that without drawing attention to myself? Oh, don't worry about that. I'll figure something out. I don't know why the assembly is being so accommodating with you. It probably means they want something. They'll wait until you look comfortable, then ask. It won't be something small. Most of the remnant study had already come to the party and gone. The only people left being the three homeless folks that Kamel had living in his extra rooms. Hard cases that had outlived their welcome at the SSG housing. And Paul might still be here too. Aramis walked past trays of grilled chicken and steak and ribs and lamb chops set up in the living room and toward the double doors leading to Kamel's back patio. There were a lot of plates piled up on the kitchen counters, stained with sauces and with random bones and bits of gristle. But Aramis was caught off guard by how much meat was left over. Kamel had to have spent a relative fortune preparing this feast. Chicken and fish were affordable enough in Hemstock, but beef and lamb had to be freighted in from the plains along the east coast. Aramis put some strips of steak and a tiny cup of dipping sauce on a plate and stepped outside onto the back patio. It was smoked tri-tip, and the sauce was tangy, and it was perfect. 
Sighing as she chewed, she stopped as she turned and saw Paul sitting by the grill, the ashy white coals glowing red around the edges. Paul was staring up at the stars, his eyes bordered by dark lines. He didn't seem to notice Aramis as she sat next to him, munching on the strips of meat. A moment later, he said, I feel so stupid. Why? I'm trying to jump across worlds and break the highest laws. Laws I didn't even know existed eight months ago. And I have to dump emotional baggage on you to do it. Whenever this bond thing kicks in, anyway. All to get back with some girl that... He trailed off, but Aramis knew what he was thinking, because he'd hinted at it before. Much to her hidden annoyance. If all of Paul's memories of Susie had been bright and wonderful, it would be slightly easier to help Paul leave and then get over him. But he was constantly thinking about his insecurities, mentioning the problems with their relationship, and that only made Aramis want to go crazy. Still, no matter how cliche and stupid all that was, she would still do anything to help Paul. You know, she said, jerking her head up toward the sky and setting her plate down. There are a lot of pravids, the more science-focused ones anyway, that believe that Prometheus is another world somewhere up there. That threshold is a man-made wormhole bridge between the two. Paul frowned. That reminds me. Why don't the Pravids here just invent the technology they know Prometheus has? It doesn't make any sense. Everything here runs on magic batteries, and back in Prometheus, every city has like a central fusion power plant that powers everything. Trains, lights. Aramis lost herself in a moment of staring at the thoughtful lines on his face. He looked like well-carved stone in the starlight with polished crystal eyes staring in defiance at the heavens. She could see a hint of the brown in his eyes, but was too tired to fight off the color right now. It's hard for Pravids to get motivated to do things like that. But, Paul stretched out his back. They could at least build faster trains. For some reason they have weird bug train things here that are really slow, like... Super long millipedes. Wouldn't like old metal wheeled trains that run on tracks be faster than those? If you're in a hurry, you can always take an air taxi. Those are pretty cheap. And teleportation stones if you're in a really big hurry. I thought you said they were really expensive. Well, just interworld ones are. If you want to just go to another city and pan, they aren't too bad. Still more expensive than a train or an air taxi, though. Paul leaned forward onto the railing. I know I keep asking this, but how do you keep your faith when you know all this stuff? Tons of people have left the study group now that Aleph Dan's put out her deadline. They can't pretend the Alephs don't exist anymore. That wasn't true. They'd left because Kamel had stopped pretending the Alephs didn't exist anymore. Aramis chewed on her lower lip and looked at the city lights of downtown Hemstock. Man-made stars below the other man-made stars. I don't know. But there are a lot of things about the Alephs that show that they aren't really gods. They can bring people back to life as Pravids, but they can't bring themselves back to life. I have to remember little things like that. Like in Yona's book, where Seven says, 
I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. Sure, an Aleph could be brought back to life, but only if the other Alephs decide to do it for him. What about the Ta? Most of them are dead. I know that. Seems an adequate indictment against them. Some would say Seven is dead. She sighed. Yeah, some would. I guess when I run out of logical reasons to believe in a real god, in the kind Seven is, I still keep believing. But not because I'm stubborn and arrogant in my own opinions. I think it has something to do with how I killed myself. Paul frowned at her. Really? That's an odd reason. Aramis's eyes widened. Yeah. I can't totally explain it. I can't even remember the details. It's weird. I can't remember how I killed myself, why I killed myself, or why all of it is so important. Still, there's, there's a confidence that springs from a sort of foggy, subconscious hint of what the details might be. Paul folded his arms. Is it being aware that you're capable of hurting yourself like that? Does that humility do something to make you believe? A rush of warmth washed over Aramis, making her shoulders and arms feel weightless. She propped her arms on the railing, then reached back to her plate to grab another piece of meat to chew on. If anybody else had said that to her, she'd feel vulnerable and exposed. She rested her chin on her arms and talked with her mouth full. I think you're right. They fell silent for a moment. Aramis felt her eyelids getting heavy and her view of the city turned blurry. A long day of sorting through paperwork, then a long walk up the hill, then eating rich food next to Paul was making her drowsy. Is Kamel around? I didn't see him when I came in. I need to talk to him about this whole pravied migration thing that's going on. Paul shrugged. Not back yet. Back from where? I don't know. I got here, he told everybody to enjoy the food, and he left. Paul looked up at the sky a moment, then sighed and sat in a lawn chair. So, back to my stupid plan. Say we actually do the bond. We still have a long trip to the Narthex, and have to get through Threshold, which is illegal. Knowing you, I figured you already had a plan, at least the beginnings of one. Aramis nodded, even though she really only had the beginnings of a beginning of a plan. So the Pravids are migrating? Aramis folded her hands together. They think they can get away from Dan by leaving the continent. I think that's stupid. It's not a terrible idea. I've been listening to the news a lot. There's no word of Dan going to any of the islands. It's still stupid. The only way to get away from her is to get off-world. But they can't. They can't get off-world. Paul continued talking. But Aramis wasn't listening to him anymore. The wheels were turning in her head. Everybody was reacting. Pravids feeling threatened, so they ran away. Paul feeling pressured by Ursi and taken away from Susie, so he tried to run back home. Aramis wanted to be with Paul, but couldn't, so she tries to get rid of him. Reaction after reaction, no one being proactive about the situation. No one going through the problems, just away from them. As she slowly came back out of her own head, she realized that she was cold, 
and that Paul had stopped talking and was looking at her. She turned toward the door. We should go inside. Hey guys, nothing big to mention right now, but I did set up a Twitch channel, and I'm going to be working on new chapter artwork for the show on there, so check it out. As always, my handle is AWilliamWright, and the channel is at twitch.tv slash AWilliamWright. And now, back to the show. Paul's eyes shot open and he sat up straight on the couch as something crashed. Like wood splitting, then smashing into something. Sitting across from him in a wingback chair, Aramis also woke with her eyes wide and her fists clenching. The light from the windows was still dark, but the sky had that dull glow that meant the sun might be coming up soon. Paul yawned. Aramis didn't look tired. She looked angry. Someone just broke in. Before Paul could respond, three men in black police uniforms charged into the living room. They were followed by two men in suits, carrying government pen readers and taking pictures of the more expensive items sitting on mantles and end tables and bookshelves. They ignored Paul and Aramis as if they weren't there. Excuse me? No one seemed to have heard Paul's question. One of the suited men pointed at a very nice lightstone lamp sitting on the fireplace mantel. A uniformed officer grabbed it and wrapped it in cloth. What are you doing? Aramis's question got the officer and the suit to pause and look at her. The suit gestured at the lamp. Kamel Kadesh turned himself in as a soul offender. All his assets are being seized by the city. What? Both Paul and Aramis said at the same time. Paul stood up. That's ridiculous. He was... I mean, he he let people live here in his house for free. People that the SSG had thrown out. He couldn't have been... He couldn't have done something like that. The suit smirked. You never can tell who's gone indigo. He was 170 years old. Don't make it that far on just clean living. You'll need to vacate the property. Don't take anything. Paul and Aramis walked together in a stupor out of the house and onto the front lawn, walking past a couple other police officers that also didn't take any notice of them. Gone indigo? Aramis flared a nostril. It's probably cop slang. Have you ever heard it before? You know about all that stuff from your mentor friend, right? She wasn't looking at him. She was watching the windows, seeing the men rummaging around. As the moments passed... Three other people exited the house. A water pravied, a stone, and a very leathery-skinned old woman. All of them carried a bag or two and looked disappointed, but not overly surprised. I had a feeling Kamel might have some skeletons in his closets, the older woman said. Hard to get this much nice stuff and not be working that much. Paul again looked at Aramis, whose brow was heavy. She looked like she was about to explode into a rant about all this, but she said nothing. She just stared at the house. Something interesting that Paul noticed, though, was that the three other people on the lawn were also watching Aramis. They weren't wandering off hoping to find somewhere else to stay. They were waiting for her 
Then, as if knowing that's what they were doing, she called out in a clear voice, Anybody want to leave Pan for good? hate being trapped like this damn assembly and their damned goons and their damn whatever. Nathan was tired and bored. He was sitting on one of the hills opposite of the Pan Narthex. The Time River and the big hedge maze between him and the huge stone relief of Prometheus in agony. Well, where it would be if he was close enough for it to be visible. Right now it was just a rock wall. He lifted up his binoculars again and looked in the general direction of where the hidden door was. They were special pan binoculars, with some sort of wizardry in them that let him see from miles away without the image jittering at all. But all that accomplished right now was to show him that there was still a pair of guards by the door. Let me see. A young man sitting next to him, Akihiro Soto of the Soyu cult, held out a hand. Nathan had almost forgotten he wasn't alone, but quickly plopped the binoculars into that kid's hand and leaned back against a tree. Akihira looked through in the direction Nathan had been and nodded. An immortal and a vassal. That is odd. Now you know why I can't just pop in and steal something to prove to your boss that I know what I'm talking about. Nathan yawned. Since watching Soma Dan fry half of Pan's boss, Aleph's, he'd been busy trying to find allies. He wanted Soma to be on his side, eventually, but first he wanted leverage. The kind of leverage he was looking for was the ability to walk up to her and say, Hello, I'm Nathan, and I have Pan's dissenters and their paramilitary forces working for me. So let's be buds. On my terms. Please and thank you. Nathan, watching Akihiro examine the guards, folded his arms and stood like a general contemplating his next offensive. Pretty soon this won't be a secret anymore, if they're leaving idiots out here like this plain as day. Akihiro nodded, still looking through the binoculars. Nathan noticed a silver pin on the lapel of the kid's very expensive-looking greatcoat. Five teardrops spinning in a circle around a square, fat Chinese character. It was a symbol for the organization that this guy was sort of a lieutenant for, which was sort of a crime syndicate. Nathan's digging hadn't uncovered all those details yet, but his group, the Soyu cult, had influence all throughout Pan, didn't like the Alephs, and had been willing to hear Nathan out in a civil manner. Nathan hadn't revealed his true identity yet, but had made a lot of big promises involving important knowledge and powerful connections. Akihiro frowned and handed the binoculars back to Nathan. We've been trying to find that door for centuries. This was one of about three dozen potentials. But I always thought it was off on one of the islands. Not in the center of the damn main continent. After all that, they just give the location away. There are three dozen other mazes? Three dozen other weird, natural barriers that are hard to get through. This is one of the worst ones, though. Nathan studied the scowl on the kid's face a moment, then chuckled. Huh. Well, they're worried. I'm still not sure if it's because of me or that crazy fire lady, Soma. Akahiro nodded. Aleph Dan. 
She approached a friend of the boss. He did not like her. Akihiro stood up and stretched out his back. Boss isn't sure about her yet. Doesn't feel safe meeting her directly. She seems a little too passionate about the letter of the law. Nathan dusted some pine needles off of the back of his pants. Well, I know you guys make a lot of your profit from gray market stuff. The only reason that media is limited is because of the bonkers laws the Alephs put down. It seems like her goal is to remove the Alephs from power. Akihiro shook his head. Let's head back. It's a long ride back to Christopres, and it's getting dark. He turned to walk deeper into the woods, where he had one of those levitating boats parked in a clearing. Chrissa. Chrissa praise. Or Chrissa praise? Chrissa. That word is not easy to say. The city's along a mountain slope, so why didn't they just call it slopes? Nathan remained behind a moment, chewing on his lip. Finally, he called out, She's going to cause a war eventually. When that happens, I know things that will be invaluable. Akihiro turned back to him and shrugged. I'm just here to confirm you know where the Narthex is. It's the boss you have to convince if you want us as an ally. You think your friends will save you? No one will hire you after this. Aramis turned away from the angry man and back to the desk, covered with identical Maza enclosures. Something was beeping. But Aramis's watch shouldn't be beeping now. Not now, when she was working. Maybe it was someone else's watch. No. No, all the enclosures were beeping. And blinking red. In unison. Except that right now she wasn't supposed to be working either. And she wasn't at work. And now there wasn't a desk with lights on it in front of her anymore. She was surrounded by absolute black. Aramis had just been getting yelled at by a man who was angry at her for not using the right kind of bearings in the legs that she had built for his walking house. He was asking about information related to her contractor's insurance. But she didn't have insurance. She didn't do jobs big enough to need insurance. But wait, she was building legs for a house? That didn't seem right. No, that was a dream. But the beeping, the beeping wasn't. She opened her eyes and saw that she was still in bed and it was still dark. No light was bleeding under the crack under the door of her tiny SSG apartment, so it couldn't be morning. She looked over at her dinged-up pocket watch on the desk and shook it. The face lit up and said, Paul Stevens. She pressed the face and the light dimmed. Yes? Paul's ragged voice came from her watch in reply to her own ragged question. Hey, Aramis. I feel terrible, but can you get me some medicine? Aramis took a moment to think about the words sorting them out one by one in her head to determine what they meant. But after a few seconds of this, the words seemed to dissolve, leaving her alone in the dark room again, feeling confused. What? I'm... I need someone to get me medicine. I can't walk without getting dizzy and throwing up. Paul sounded terrible. 
She shook her watch again, and it said it was three in the morning. Sounds like a stomach bug. You should drink some ginger beer. Aramis said the words without thinking. She sorted out her own words in her head the same way she had Paul's. Then she frowned. I guess I could buy you some. How long have you been sick? Two days. It's getting worse. Can you keep anything down? Paul grumbled something that was probably a no. Aramis couldn't remember why she remembered how to take care of someone with a stomach virus. Or where she'd learned it. But she knew that two days of not keeping anything down could be dangerous. Especially for a big, stubborn guy like Paul, who wouldn't be asking for help unless he was in really bad shape. She sat up on her bed and grumbled loudly. She drew in a deep breath as she both formed a plan and screwed up her determination to do the plan. I'm going to come over and get you to the clinic. You probably need an IV. Aramis had always been aware that Paul was a wide-shouldered mass of bulky muscles. Walking down the empty streets with the air freezing, Paul barely able to stand, and all his weight on her shoulders was a very different sort of awareness of how big he was. She was very strong, even for a water, but she was heaving and her back was aching before she had just over a kilometer left to go. Let's take a break. She came up to a bench and sat themselves down. Paul hunched over on the bench, clutching his head. Can I have more of that ginger beer? Hermes gave a soft mm-hmm and pulled the fat bottle out of her jacket pocket and handed it to him. He sipped it carefully and sighed. It is literally shocking how much better that makes me feel. Hermes chuckled. Thousands of years, people have been saying ginger helps with nausea, but for hundreds of years, scientists insist that it doesn't. Either way, maybe it's the bubbles. I don't care what's doing it. It's wonderful and it works. Aramis looked at him and saw that he was shivering. Come on, let's go. I should have got you tea instead of the soda. She caught him back up to his feet and they went underway. How are we going to do this, Ari? Aramis felt a chill in her gut. She couldn't remember the last time someone had called her that. It was as shocking as if Paul had just kissed her. We'll take it one step at a time. I'm talking about leaving Pan. I know. Aramis leaned her head just slightly against Paul's shoulder, knowing it wasn't a great idea, but doing it anyway. Colors flooded into the dark street. The tungsten lamps here and there and the orange torch stones all turned the world into a gold and brass dreamscape. A Coca-Cola sign hanging over a little shop was the most amazing solid color of red Aramis could ever remember seeing before. As they passed the shop, Aramis caught a reflection of herself in the windows. Her eyes bulged as she noticed, for the first time, that the frames of her glasses were red. The same bright red as the Coca-Cola sign. Why did anyone tell me... Tell you what? Aramis didn't answer. If she'd finished the sentence, Paul would know she was seeing color right now. 
her anger toward everyone, toward every single color seeing person she'd ever interacted with in the last four years since she'd bought the glasses, was intense. But fortunately, Paul was too groggy to mind that she didn't answer his question. Maybe she'd yell at Phyllis later. If anyone should have told her that she'd bought bright red glasses, she should have. Paul's mind seemed to wander to something else. They're watching all of us, trying to find any excuse to arrest us. Just because we were friends with Kamel. They walked along without talking. Aramis drew in a long breath through her nose. I'm not leaving Pan. What? Why? I'm going to smuggle you into Prometheus with me. I have a plan. You'd turn into water and I'd put you in a big drum and say it was a microbrew. Then I'd roll you out. And I'd... Then you'd meet Susie. She breathed through her nose slowly. I'm not worried about Aleph Dan. Or the police. They treated me like a lowlife anyway, so it's no different. Paul seemed to gather his thoughts a moment. I wish more of the study group was coming with us. They're not outsiders. So? You always knew more about the remnants than Kamel anyway. Paul shifted his weight, trying to put more on his own legs. Do you think a lot of people will come to your meeting next week? Maybe. You said your friends from the docks were coming, right? He nodded. And they know how to fight, I guess. Milton offered to teach me some basic stuff. That's good. Aramis thought about the horror stories Ignacio had told her about mercenary vassals. About all the strange weapons out there. The Mazai-based ones she sometimes worked on being mild in comparison. About how Alice would hire bloodthirsty men to pretend to be looking to be bonded to Pravids, then murder them out in the wilderness to steal their space. He thought about the fear Aleph Dan was spreading because of her aggression and wanting to stop that. Aramis let out a long breath, feeling empty. Paul's voice pulled her out of herself. You know how to fight, right? With your water powers? She nodded. It's dangerous living around other people's powers. But it's also easy to get lazy if you don't have to work out to keep yourself in shape. I used to not be lazy. I trained two or three times a week for about three years with Ignacio. He was really, really good. That's one reason why it's so hard for me to believe he was killed. Are you really, really good? Aramis laughed. No, I haven't really trained in like two years. That was until last week when she decided she would figure out how to smuggle a group of people out of Pan. Since then, she'd been going down to the river every day to practice. She was very rusty and doubted she'd be any sort of a threat by the time they went on their way, but it was better than nothing. Paul sighed. It's also crazy. Element magic, all of it. How did I never learn about any of this stuff in Prometheus? Aramis would have shrugged if a hundred kilo dude weren't resting on her shoulders. I guess Pravids over there just stay hidden. Over here they flaunt themselves. That's a stereotype anyway. Paul grumbled. Aramis felt it more than she heard it. I bet it's hard to resist the temptation to use that. Aramis snorted a humorless laugh. I guess. I'm on the low end of that scale. 
Paul didn't say anything. Aramis wasn't sure why. Maybe he thought she was fishing for a compliment and he didn't want to be manipulated into forcing one out. Maybe he didn't want to lead her on by saying he thought she was pretty. Maybe he agreed with her and didn't want to sound mean by saying so. But after a long time, he said, I don't like being different. I don't mind being different. I just don't like... They walked on and turned a corner. Aramis could see the clinic a couple blocks away. Paul cleared his throat and got a little heavier on her shoulders. Don't like what? Aramis could ramble on about how she was in the bottom 10% of the Praveeds of the commune. About the theory some of her peers there had come up with about why she was still cursed with colorblindness. They usually didn't say it to her face, but they joked that she had probably been so ugly as a human that she could only be made a little better than plain when she became a Praveed. One less than polite girl had once said to her, you had to have been only a three because you're barely a six right now. And that's only because your glasses make you a little cuter. She was still colorblind because she was too ugly to live out the carefree, love-filled life Praveeds were supposed to live, according to them. It was hard being different, but being the ugliest of the pretty people was a special type of nightmare. At least she had great hair. She pushed all the gross self-hatred away and brought herself back to the moment she was in right now. She was thankful that she was only thinking all this and not saying it to Paul. She didn't need to pile all that on him. She shifted him to a more comfortable position on her shoulders and picked up her pace. We're almost there. Aramis stumbled to her knees at the bank of the Alanessa River, the shadow of one of the bridges concealing her from the silver light of the moon. She punched the dusty, thick-grained sand and groaned. Why can't you show me mercy? Please! Please! She could still smell Paul on her, as if he was still leaning on her shoulder his sweat and deodorant. The world around her should be dark and colorless in the moonlight, but it was flashing indiscriminately. On for one item, off for everything else. On for everything else, off for one item. Green on the moss of a rock, swaying in the angry winter current. Yellow of a piece of trash near the water. Gold of the worn electroplating on the chain of Aramis's fob watch. Red of the suicide netting hanging from underneath the bridge. A surge of shame hit Aramis with nausea and lightheadedness. As bad as she felt right now, she couldn't imagine ever feeling so hopeless as to kill herself. But somehow she had once before. How had she been such a coward? She thought about how looking at Paul's face always made her feel safe and weightless. The subtle movements he made when he was irritated. Little things like that made her want him more than the breath in her lungs. And now the way her blindness tried to break free, the way it rebelled here in the dark night, incoherent colors all around her as if she was going insane. He had called her airy. How dare he? 
Who the hell did he think he was giving her a pet name? He didn't want to hold her close as they whispered their darkest secrets and deepest hopes to each other. He wasn't willing to give up anything for her. She had no choice but to adore him and do everything in her power to bring him whatever he wanted. Everything within herself that made her who she was demanded it. But all he wanted was to leave her. That's why she was crying out for mercy. She wanted to be free of the torment of her treacherous, unconditional love for Paul. She closed her eyes, bent forward, and pressed her forehead against the gritty sand. She clenched handfuls of the damp grains in both hands. Her body shook. Even with her eyes closed, there wasn't escape. She saw Paul, in vivid color, standing in front of her, hands in his pockets, defiance against the world in his brown eyes, until he looked at her and smiled. He would trust her with his life, but refused to pay any attention to her life. Hermes had no idea she could love someone and hate someone so much at the same time. She screamed into the sand, hoping the rush of the river would hide her voice from anyone walking nearby through the cold night air. Thanks for listening. Chapter 15 will be posting February 5th. To keep up to date on all Maybar-related news or to ask me questions, find me on most of the things at A. William Wright. The World's a Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. As always, have a great couple of weeks, everybody. Bye.